I, I want to go back to the woman of Samaria. Um, I know we've not done this consecutive weeks, but every time I go back, I see something else that ought to be said. And so I want to really go back to verse 27. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or what do you, why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot, went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? And, and that one sentence has been haunting me these last days. Come see a man who told me all things that I have done. Um, I, I think you know the story. Um, the woman <coughs> has been um, talking with Jesus, I'll put it that way for now, and um, he has introduced her to the water of life, the water that shall never be um, lost. It will be the water running within her, the waters that should never thirst again. And the conversation unfolds to where she realizes Jesus knows her through and through. And she is so excited. And that may be is the key and what drew me back and back to this text. She is so excited with that, that she runs into the town. She leaves her water pot, maybe as a symbol to say to Jesus and the disciples, I found the water that I'll never need this water again. And in symbol, she leaves the water pot, maybe. But she left her water pot and ran back into the town to tell essentially everyone, come and see a man that told me everything I've ever done. And, and I just want to hit one or two things that leap out at me. And the first one is that she said, come and see a man, the man Jesus. So everything begins in this sentence with an invitation to the people to come and discover the person of Jesus as she had. That is to meet for themselves this person who had transformed her life. Now, okay, everybody can say yes to that. It's pretty obvious. But I want to compare that to what the gospel has become. And I don't want to be picky, and I'm not just nosing into, you know, just to pick on words. But this was a, an invitation to meet personally with the real person of Jesus. And whatever happened after that was none of her business. She said, he has told me everything I've ever done. And I'm excited beyond myself because of that. But now you go and find out for yourself. And it was come and see this man. Come and let this man speaking to your life as he spoke into mine. Now, what she didn't say and please, I'm not being picky. It's a fact. She didn't say, 
that I have come to believe upon Jesus, and if you repent and believe, you will have the same. She didn't promise anything. She didn't say, if you want joy, if you're tired of your miserable lives, if your life is what? No. She simply said, I've met someone. He's told me everything I ever did, and I'm excited about it. Now, you come and meet him for yourself. And that, it won't, I can't get rid of that. The church today, and I'm not on one church, I mean the church today, has confused, hear me carefully, confused the message of the resurrection with the resurrected one. The church today has a message. It's a neat little package thing that borders on a formula. And it's all about you, that if you will do this and you will do that, then you will experience this. And we portray to the world, if you want, fill in the blank, if you want joy, if you want peace, if you want healing, if you, if you, if you, then you do this and do this and do this because this is the message. And I find increasingly there's no reference, immediately anyway, to the person of Jesus. We are not presenting a message. You know, it's getting to be a little too popular these days where people say, I like I'm talking about pastors now. I like the message of grace. I like the message. I'm going to add that to my list of things I believe. And I have to gently tell them you can't do that because this is not a message. This is the person and let that person into your life and who knows what will happen. I don't know. Because it's not a formula that if you do this and this, you'll get this. It is the real person of Jesus coming into life. And she is, that's all she says. In fact, I don't think she knew much else at this point. But she knows enough to say, come and see and know him for yourself. And when you come and see, I'll take a back seat to watch what happens because I have no idea what's going to happen. When he comes into your life as he has come and revealed himself in my life, then anything can happen. You see, I'll put it this way, there is no one-size-fits-all. You, you can't get this thing called the gospel and say that if you do this and this, then you'll get this because one size fits all. You are as unique as your fingerprint. One size doesn't fit all. The way God has met with me, he met with me in my unique darkness, in my unique experience of the lie. He met me there. And it's unique, therefore you don't have that. You didn't live my life. You didn't know what I went through. I don't know what you went through. But Jesus not only knows it, but he is he's the one size who fits all because whatever you've been through, his word, his exegesis of the good news that he is, will transform your life at the most personal level. 
Okay, he is the man. She says, come and see a man. Well, absolutely. I not only cannot advance on that, I proclaim it. He is the man. But remember this. This is in the Gospel of John. And I know that we look through all the four Gospels and see a, a corporate picture of it all. But if you want to really hear what is in any story, you've got to ask who wrote it and where's it fit in what they wrote. Because it's interesting, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not report this. This is reported uniquely by John. And he places it where he places it. And in the book in which he places it, he's trying to get across a message. And what he says illustrates the message. Who is Jesus? So where does his book begin? If you go to Matthew, he begins with Jesus as the one who is the promised Messiah, and he has a genealogy that goes back. And so we, we, we meet a very human Jesus. And then he begins in immediate history with the virgin birth. So he begins when Jesus was born, and to say he's been part of the human race in his genealogy from the very beginning. So when I read Matthew, that's what I'm finding all the way through. Mark is, is really Peter's testimony that Mark wrote down, and it's very quick. It's very much like Peter, just speaking his mind very quickly and pick up the pieces afterward. And Mark's gospel, it says, and immediately this, and immediately that. And, and you get almost excited as you're rushing through the life of Jesus with Peter. Uh, Luke... Well, Luke shows Jesus from a Gentile point of view, really. And he says this amazing character. He hangs out with all the wrong people. He hangs out with tax collectors. He hangs out with Samaritans. And he exalts women to a position they've never had since creation. And so he goes on. Then I come to John. Where do you start, John? You start with a virgin birth? No, he goes beyond that. And he says, before there was a creation, he uses in the beginning. And that term has not been used since Genesis. He says, at the beginning, at creation, the word, and that's his word for Jesus. He said, in the beginning. So as Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 opens, in the beginning, John says, in the beginning, the word, Jesus, already was. In fact, all things created, he created them. Without him, there was not anything made that was made. He's at the beginning. And he says he was face to face with the Father, one with the Father, God, from God. And he says he, he became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, that's where we begin. He became flesh. Who became flesh? The God who has always been became flesh. The God who was face to face with God. God from God. Light from light. Became flesh. Became human. But flesh is not 
a nice word in the New Testament. Um, flesh means broken, messed up, darkened humanity. Jesus didn't become mankind before the fall. He joined us after the fall and he got inside the darkness of our brokenness and, and corruption and lies and God who created all things. God from God became flesh and took up residence here. Well, I said that's how he begins. But he illustrates that all the way through. The, all the other chapters go back to that. He assumes you're reading the whole book. So that means, she said, I, I met a man. Ah, TikTok. He, yes, he's a man, all right. He's the man. You've never met a man like him. But we've already been clued in. This man is none other than God from God who took to himself or assumed our humanity at our worst so that he is God who took our humanity and refused to be Adam. He took our humanity and refused to believe the lies of Satan that continually bombarded his head, which, of course, humankind accepted without a blink but he's a man. And that means, and I, I, how can I say this? If I said he was God, well, that would be sort of wonderful. But does God really know what it is like to be a businessman in a third world country under the oppression of Rome? Does God, okay, God knows everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was everything. Um, that doesn't help me. I mean, he knows it. But does he feel it? Has God ever had a knot in his stomach because he's going to meet the IRS of the Roman Empire as a businessman? Has he ever... Has God ever known counting out money to know whether I can afford the temple tax, which they call tithing. Um, that was not an act of great love for God. Tithing was a temple tax. And by the way, don't, don't think tithing was 10%. That, that's just how the 21st century gets away with money. But tithing was 30%. 30% of your cash went to the tithes, to the temple plus the Roman tax. Does God know that by feeling it? Does God have intestines that get all in knots? Has God ever faced at a relational level people that are hurting you? You know what I'm saying. Has God ever wept tears of despair? Has God ever danced at a party until he's out of breath? No. God became flesh. He became a man. And so real that everything I've just said, God 
now inside our human, one with our human, experienced it. And experiencing it, chose as a human to trust his Father and to rise above anxiety and to rise above all the unlove and rise above the lies that present themselves to the human head to say this is the way to act and he said no I choose my father I choose my father and he cut away in life that had never been cut before he's real man but he's man as God always intended man to be a genuine man and so when he sits down with this woman he can totally relate to what she's talking about not know about it but relate to it, feel it. He's faced pain, he's faced rejection, he's faced relational brokenness. He knows what that is. He's one of us, he's a fellow human. He knows it. And at the same time, he's God. Come see a man. Come see a man. God incarnate. And... That didn't stop, and please, some have never thought about this, but it didn't stop when Jesus died. It isn't, the resurrection is not God saying, well, thank God, that's over, I'm out of here. Do do you remember the resurrection? Jesus had a body, a body we've never seen before, I'll, I'll grant you that, but it was a human body. It ate, this body took food in front of them left crumbs on the table, bones of fish on the side of the plate. And he said to them, come on, touch me, handle me, I'm not a ghost. He had a genuine human body after the resurrection. And then when the Holy Spirit came, that was the real spirit, not Casper the friendly ghost. The Holy Spirit is absolute person as much as the Father and the Son a person as you are. And he came inside of us as the very presence of this Jesus who is 100% one with us. So that's why the news never changes. That's why I can say to you, come see a man. Because the Holy Spirit reveals to us this God who became one of us and is still one of us. Therefore knows us. See, if if God came, let me say it again, he could not experience what's going on inside the horror of our human darkness and pain. He knows it. He loves us. But only human can get inside that darkness. And of course, if Jesus is only a man, well, he's just sympathetic, helpless, Because if he's only a man, he's going to be very quickly sucked into that darkness. So if he's God, he can't help us. If he's man, he can't help us. But if God became man, we've got something going on here we could not imagine in our wildest dreams. That God himself can totally relate to our darkness know what we're going through. As it says, 
He's touched by the feelings of our infirmities. He knows and feels the horror of our situation. He can enter into our deepest and darkest secrets because he's our brother. God is our brother in the person of Jesus. And he came to us. We didn't initiate it. You didn't send a letter to a heavenly Santa Claus and say, I'd like you to come here for Christmas. Um, And I, I am serious. Some people act as if God has to have permission to come. He needs no permission. He made you. He owns you. He got the blueprint. We love him, it says, because he first loved us. He didn't say, hands up all those who want me to come. Count them. Yeah. Do we have enough? No. And yeah, you laugh, I laugh. But what I'm hearing in many quarters, you would think that's the case. That God needs my permission to save me. God needs my permission to come into my darkness. Are you daft? This is the creator. This is the lover supreme. This love encompasses from before time and after time. And he made us to love us. And he, he seen us, we've lost our mind. He doesn't ask us. We're in some darkness of dementia where Satan has given us an entire world that doesn't exist going on inside our head. Therefore, he doesn't ask our permission. God has come into our human situation as, and, and I mean as for real, he's man. And he sat on that well side and he looked at this woman And when she looked into the eyes of Jesus, she was looking into the eyes of God who is love. She looked into the eyes of probably hundreds of men. But these were the eyes of God, but they're human eyes. He looked at her, loved her. It's interesting. It says in our Bibles that, you remember how it goes, Jesus says, give me to drink. And she said, um, how is it you're a Jew talking to me, a woman, a Samaritan? Very, and, and as I said, the Greek language there indicates very rough, very I kind of get out of my way, you Jew. Um, and it says in our Bible, and most I think is true of just about anything's in your hand, it says, and Jesus answered her, which... Yeah, but the word there in the original language is not answer, as we understand answer. It might be if you're answering someone with your entire being and not just with words out of your mouth. Actually, the word could well be, maybe I dare say should be, translated, and Jesus looked at her intensely. That would be a good translation. The word is look. Looked at her. I mean, get the picture. Sit where she sits. She said, essentially, you're a Jew. You're traveling north. I know you're here for a few hours at best. And you're trying to get a free drink out of me. 
I go down there, I get the water, I bring it back, you... No, 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 I knew you Jews. And I'm a woman, Jews don't talk to women. Jesus looked at her intently and said, if you knew who I was, and if you knew you the gift that I bring, you'd be asking of me. But he looked at her. Let let me tell you what this word means, because it's very important. It, It means to give, what can I say, a full. That is, there's no distractions here. You know when a person looks at you and you've got their entire attention. Then, uh, you ever talk to people and while you're talking, they're looking over your shoulder and uh, seeing a monkey in the tree or something. And, and you say, for goodness sake, are you listening to me? You know, right. You've never preached, have you? <laughs> no, this means the full attention. You're listening with your arms. You're listening with your legs. You're listening. It means full and focused attention. There's nobody in my world right now except you. The word could, if you pull the word apart, it could mean to direct your eyes, to observe, to examine, to weigh. It's someone coming inside you, looking into you and weighing your life. I know you. I see you. He was looking into her heart. Sometimes it's translated gaze, which is, yeah, if we knew what gaze means, that's a pretty good translation. It means to consider. And consider is a very ancient word, is a Latin word, considere. And it comes from astronomers. Did you know that? The word consider, the astronomers would go into the field at night and lay on their back all night long watching the stars and what they were doing in latin was called considere that is there's no i can't see anything else i i am on my back watching the stars consider he considered her yeah if you know what it means um behold uh, and although it's not the word but it's an echo of that first few verses of john face to face You are face to face. You are looking into, and looking into with expectancy. It isn't that I'm just listening. This listening, this conversation is going somewhere. There's a look of expectancy that's in this word. It's as if, could could you imagine on the face of Jesus, there's the beginning of a smile um, when he says, if you knew who I am. He doesn't say that like Charleston Heston, you know, if you knew who I am. It's, it's a dancing smile. <laughs> Boy, you don't. If you knew who I am, you would have asked me. You know, there, there's a joyful, a buoyant, because he knows where this conversation's going. And he, he's speaking with the expectancy. Uh, you're going to get this. It's a smile of anticipation. What does that do? Someone is looking at me, you could say, with x-ray eyes. They're seeing me. But the look of Jesus conveyed an opinion. 
He's not looking with indifference. There's no rolling of the eyes and another Samaritan woman, no. He looked at her. There's no judgment. She can feel that. She had been, if any woman in that part of Samaria could tell you about looks, she could tell you. She had been looked at with a sneer, with disgust, repulsion, judgment. But that's not here. Jesus is looking at her. There's no despising. Because the Bible does speak of a proud look. You know the look of us and them? You know, well, I won't go there. But you know what? When the religious hit street, there's that look of us and them. No, not with Jesus. That's, no. There's no demeaning. There's no put down. There's no you poor woman of Samaria. Have I got news for you? I've got a mission to abused women like you. No, he looks at her eye to eye, face to face, with nothing but love. It didn't terrorize her. She's not afraid. It's a safe love. The Bible word is compassion, an urgent, insistent love. He knows everything about her. And yet as he knows it, she feels loved, safe. It's gone on all through Scripture. Um, we might visit some other time. I don't know. But I just, so you can remember it, because you've read it. I m maybe you never thought about it. Uh, do you remember Hagar? Hagar, the um, mistress, you could say, of Abraham, who came in to give an heir? And do you remember how the big mess up between her and Sarah, and she flees for her life? And run, she wants to run back to Egypt, to her home. And she gets lost and thirsty. And God reveals himself. Now, she's, she's not a believer. Um, she, she doesn't know what Abraham's talking about. She's just a slave girl. And, 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 but as she's essentially dying in the wilderness, God appears to her. And she calls him. She says, the, the name of this God. She says, you God who see me. And again, as a pagan speaking, she didn't know a God. If a God that looked at her, that's, that's curtains. You're done. God saw me. Uh, and um, no, this God saw her and, and cared for her in the wilderness. That's what I'm talking about. This incredible God who sees you, knows everything about you. The rich young ruler who rejected Jesus. And yet it says, and Jesus looked on him and loved him as the kid is walking away. And then, of course, you have those other scriptures where Jesus saw the multitude, and he saw them as broken and beaten up by religion, and he taught them. And it says he saw them, and he healed their sick. The, the teaching and the healing always was prefaced by he saw them, or he had compassion on them. The look... I'll ask you the question, how did Jesus look at the leper? Do you remember the leper came and says, if you want to, you can heal me. 
And remember that there was a rigid law in those days. A leper could not come any closer than about 15 feet. And that's only if the wind was blowing away from you. If the wind was blowing toward you, well, forget it. Uh, the leper had to shout as he walked, I'm unclean, get out of my way, I'm unclean, don't let me breathe on you. Leper. This leper came much closer than he was supposed to. And he says, if you want to, you can make me well. I know it, but I, I don't know. Dare I come any closer? And in, in the original language, the word used is the same word that would be used to describe the snort of a horse. You ever? I, I won't even try to do it, but it, it's, it's sort of today we would stamp your foot and say, how dare you think otherwise? Of course I want to. What, what look went with that? What look that, that conveyed to the leper that he was touchable, lovable in a world that hated the sight of him and actually called him a dead man walking? What was the look of Jesus when he was writing in the sand and then came back uh, and the original language would be he's sort of kneeling and throws his back so he's now eye to eye with the woman taken in adultery and says, where are you? What, what was the look of Jesus that she totally relaxed and says, no man, Lord, no man. Think about it. The woman who washed his feet with all religion cursing her for being there what was the look of Jesus when he says she is much forgiven, loves much? What about the look of Jesus over Jerusalem who were about to crucify him and he wept and the Greek there is with great convulsive sobs. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks? But you would not. The look. The look of Jesus was incredibly safe. The, the, the result of his look was people were drawn to him. They never, why, why do tax collectors want to eat with him more than once? Because he didn't. There's no sense of rejection, no sense of judgment. Just um, no shame. Jesus' look never, never conveyed that. See, when we look at ourselves, now hear me, when self looks at self, then we come up, well, there's avoidance. There are some things going on in our life. We will not look there. It, 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 gives, it gives us physical pain to look there. And so we avoid it. It's, it's almost denial that it's not there because we will not go there. We cannot look at ourselves without terrible shame. And in many people, it goes as far as self-loathing. They can't look at themselves. But when he looks at us, when he looks at us, he looks right there at the pit of our darkness and loves us, and suddenly it's safe, it's okay. 
He sees clearly in our time. That's what Psalm 139 says. It's a strange scripture. It says, even our darkness is light to you. That is the place of our worst darkness is totally exposed. He knows it as if all the lights are blazing. He knows it. He's Lord of our darkness. Do you remember Revelation 1.17? I am the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. I am he who is life, the living one, the livingness. I was dead. I have actually resided inside your death, your unlife. I was dead. But behold, I am alive and alive to the ages of ages in a human body. Human, I joined your family and I conquered death and death is gone for all of us in this family that I've now joined. But then he says, I have the keys of death and hell. That's an amazing scripture. I I say to people, I don't don't care what you believe about hell. Whenever you get there, whatever you believe it is or isn't, you'll find Jesus. (laughs) I mean, doesn't that say that? He's got the keys uh, of hell. Uh, I mean, does that mean he's the one at the door that lets the devil in? Uh, I mean, no, don't be daft. He, He holds the keys of hell, which means he's taken up residency in what you call hell. And for hell for most people is where this woman was living. That hell, he says, I've got the keys. And essentially, the darkness of hell is a twisted, distorted image of God, a total lie concerning ourselves and the situations we find ourselves in. But when he looks at that same situation, the lights are turned on and he sees it as truth. Or you could say the light of his look penetrates our darkness and heals everything he sees and has joined himself to. It's it's this word confession that has held the Christian, well, whatever you call it, the church, in bondage. Confession. Confession. Confession has been seen since what, about a thousand years ago or so, maybe more than that in some areas. But confession has been seen as something we do, dragging up any sin that we can sort of talk about, dragging up all the guilt, making sure we've got all the shame, and confessing it to a God we believe is on the verge of judging and damning us And we beg like beggars for mercy and hope that somebody will tell us that you're forgiven. That has held the church in bondage for a thousand years. Because this, come see a man. This This is that God you're afraid of because your brain has been twisted by Satan to see him as a vengeful, revenging, hateful God. 
Instead, he's become a man. Become a man for real, in that he's never going to become anything else. He's never ceased to be God, so he can reveal the beauty of the love of God right through our humanity. And he sits there as our brother, and he enters into this woman's darkness, enters into her shame, and he turns on the lights and he tells her, I know all about you. But he said it with eyes of such love, such acceptance, that she boasted in it. He told me everything I've ever done. Huh, that, that speaks volumes. Did, didn't that shock you off your seat when you read it? A woman runs back to a town, a town that has looked at her with disgust, rejection, judgment, repulsion. They don't want to be with her. She runs back to that town and she's shouting like a, a maniac, saying, come, you're going to see a man. He told me everything I ever did. What? Come on. I mean this. If you meet somebody who knows everything about you, huh. but when we're talking about God, he's all-powerful and sovereign. So he knows everything about me, all that stuff I don't confess. He knows it, and knowing it, he's all-powerful. And, say the creeds of our churches, he's omnipresent, which means I cannot escape his presence. So he's there at all times he's all-powerful he's sovereign and he knows everything about me huh he doesn't like me because the creeds of our churches doesn't say that they just say he's sovereign all-powerful omnipresent omniscient and i say and more and no there's no more that's it you've got it but then he doesn't like me. Can you imagine living? And I mean living. There's no secret place. Living with a person who knows everything about you. Who's all powerful. And he doesn't like you. In fact, according to most reports, he's disgusted with you most of the time. He's annoyed with you. In fact, he's repulsed with what he knows about you. It's a terrifying situation. Told me everything I ever did. When that doesn't make sense to me. It's a terrifying You want to flee if someone knows everything about you. I mean, people have committed suicide over that. Haven't you heard about it? I mean, this is actual history. They've received a note. Everything is known. And they've committed suicide. They don't know what they're doing. But if everything's known, I can't face life tomorrow. I've got to hide at best. I've got to escape from this situation. Do you realize that is what thousands of people call church? 
that every week I'll do anything to escape this God who knows everything about me and doesn't like me. What do I have to do to escape? Certainly not run and tell everybody. He knows all about me. This is the most exciting thing. You've got to come and see it. He knows everything about me. Well, (laughs) it's bad enough he knows. I bet he'll tell the first person who comes. This is going to be the talk of the town. He's going to share all my secrets. No, no such fear. She wants them to go and meet him. Do you get this? This is a strange verse. Her excitement is that she's being discovered in her darkness. Huh. She's thrilled that her secrets have been revealed, that they're now wide open to the eyes of this man who has also revealed himself to her as Messiah which he didn't do to anybody else. That's the amazing thing. No, because when he looks, it's not a revelation of sin and brokenness, but it's a revelation of sin forgiven. Sin that reveals that she is beloved and accepted and included And yes, he does know all things, but it's love that knows all things, which makes his knowing all things safe beyond any English word to describe it. And he had offered her life. Life such as she couldn't comprehend it. Life which meant that the contentment and the peace and the joy of fulfillment He'd offered her that in the full knowledge of her darkness. Did you get that? When he said, I have a gift for you, water that will slake your inmost thirst, that you'll never thirst again. I I have that gift. When he said that, he already knew the depth of her darkness and her worst secrets but he gave it. So he came into the place of her horror and said to her, I have a gift for you. He knew the secrets about her that she loathed, that she hid herself from, and hid it certainly from everybody else. And he came there and says, I've got a gift for you. his very self, life. He didn't give her counseling. Well, I'm just saying what I was raised along with. Um, Get a messed up character like this, the poor lady needs counseling. Nor was she stood in the look of Jesus and was never the same again. He didn't tell her to try and do better this time. But love came to her, conveyed to her through his look, through his words, and that look untangled the complicated mess of her darkness. He undid knots in her life that no other human being could ever undo. 
she's discovered that not only was every secret of her life exposed to God, but that God that they'd been exposed to was a God she'd never dreamed of in her wildest imagination. Never thought of it. And that God was not just God the Son who has become flesh. Because I know that's what a lot of people believe. And let's be honest about it. Most people will not talk about God the Father. Just, whoa, he's not nice. At least you're not sure about him, see. You're sure about Jesus. Well, we've got the Gospels and Jesus is nice. He's the one, it says, he was moved with compassion. Jesus is okay. And if you're a charismatic, well, the Holy Spirit, he's the song of the party, um, and he's very safe. Although he does some weird things, yes, but, but God the Father, we don't want him at the party because you never know. I mean, he wanted to kill you, didn't he? And he had to kill his son instead. Whoa. How would you like to have that as your neighbor? Supposing your neighbor came and said, I've got good news for you. I hate you so much I wanted to kill you. But I decided to torture and kill my own son. Will you come for dinner tonight? Um, no, I think I'd call 911 actually. We've got a maniac here. You know? But that's what many people believe. No wonder they can't stand the Father. But Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is God from God. He comes with everything the Father is. He is everything the Father is, except he's not the Father. And when you meet Jesus, you meet everything the Father is, except he's not the Son. But you... And Jesus said, no one knows the Father. He's true. He's speaking about the 21st century. But of course he said it in the 1st century. No one knows the Father except me, the Son. How do you know the Father? Because he comes from the Father. No prophet came from God. They stood beside God, overheard God, came with what they thought God said. But he comes out from God. He is God out of God. So the Father, what's the Father like? The Father is exactly like Jesus. And Jesus said, I exegete the Father. And he says, I don't do anything except the Father does it. I don't say anything except I hear the Father said. Which means that when Jesus turned water into wine... It wasn't an idea that popped into his head. He was saying, what do you say, Father? And he saw, he knew this is what the Father's doing. He did it after him. I could, that's another story. But what I mean is everything Jesus did is the Father. <sighs> well, I won't go there. That's a thing by itself. But saying this, the look of Jesus, the act of don't think it's just Jesus. The Father was there looking through the eyes of Jesus. The Father was there embracing this woman. 
endorsing her forgiveness and our acceptance. The Holy Spirit was there, opening her ears and eyes. You never meet one person of the Trinity. There is one God. You may meet Jesus, but you're meeting the Father and the Spirit. You might have met the Holy Spirit, and I endorse that. Yes, you did. But don't think you didn't meet with the Father. Who brought you? You're his child. It came through Jesus. Oh, this, this is God. This, this is God who is love, who is compassion. And whenever he speaks, whenever he looks, there's no condemnation. There is no shame. He communicates this, this energy field of divine love, of acceptance and inclusion. And love's embrace. Huh. I mean, a look that penetrates the darkness. A look that never inspires fear. Never inspires condemnation. That assures me, just the look. And you know what I'm talking about. A person can look at you. One look, they don't have to say anything. They've said a, a book. And this woman knew looks, as I said. But this look, this look said forgiveness. You're accepted. You're beloved. Yet you, you have been given this gift. You're sharing in the life of God. Well, what does that, that cause? Just sit there and... Sit there, sit there where you are and realize that's what's happening right now to every one of us. And when you see it, when you see the sea, when you know the look, that causes, or shall I say, brings about radical metanoia, that word we're using, uh, the radical change of mind and a change of mind in which he now saw God is not the God I thought he was. Sometimes you hear about people saying, I, I've walked away from church. I don't believe in God anymore. And I always say, and so have I, you know, so have I. The church you walked away from, I've walked away from. And the God that you've junked, it's about time you did. Fire him. No. Radical metanoia begins there. You see God as you've never seen him before. And what happens? But then you see yourself as you've never seen yourself before because you're seeing yourself through his eyes and he's telling you that he sees you as you've never seen yourself. This is an exchange of thoughts. She is exchanging her thoughts about God and about herself. She's exchanging them for his thoughts. See, many people turn this right on its head. And if they were this woman, if, of course, truth is we are, but we, we would say to, hear me carefully because I'm not joking here. We say to God, you have got to change your mind about me because I know me better than you do. do. Do you understand? God, if you knew me like I know me, you couldn't love me. So it's a time you changed your mind. 
fear. No, she saw herself through his eyes as he knew. So she is now safe in her own look. She can look into the darkness and she is safe from herself. She can look and say, I look with his eyes. Acceptance. So she trusted his look, her, his seeing of her, which was complete. And she was pre- free from her own self-imprisonment in her darkness and shame, where she was her own jailer. She kept herself because she, you know, you know, you're human, I'm human. We know what we mean when we say there's a voice inside of us that continually tells us we're worthless, we're no good, we have no value, we're stupid, we're idiot, and all the rest of it. And we believe it and become our own jailer. But he looks and cuts through the lies and declares us to be the beloved, the forgiven. Because the finale of the conversation, which really seems to have set her off, is when when she, it seems like it's one, okay, I can't go here. We've got to have some religion in here. And she said, you know, where, where do we worship? And she addresses where the Samaritans worshipped, which was in its Mount Gerizim area. And um, they, they were a pagan bunch, really. They believed the first five books of the Bible, that's it. And um, very sad. But she said, do we worship God on this mountain, Samaritan religion? Or do we worship God with you Jews down on Mount Zion in in Jerusalem. Or to put it this way, which church do I have to go to to get this? You're talking to me. I mean, my brain can't take it in. Where where do I, I, I... Is it that I've misheard what they're saying on Mount Gerizim? Or do I have to go to Jerusalem? And Jesus replies... Nowhere. Oh, that's terrible. Terrible. But he said, there's no place where you'll find this. There's no building that says only truth known here, you know. There's no religion with all its boxes and rules and formulas. You'll find this in sharing a relationship with the Father, which I have come now to give to you. And I say that seems to set her off because that's where it all explodes. The joy was created within her. So much she ran back across the semi-desert to, to the town to share it with the entire town. The scripture says, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Your entire life is but the demonstration of what you believe in your heart. And when she ran back to the town, she has become the messenger of the person. 
and she gave her testimony. I've met a man. Come see this man who told me everything I ever did. It's her testimony. And do you remember a few weeks ago, months ago, years ago, we, we did a message on testimony. And the word testimony means do it again. You're saying it again, but it's got an energy in it that produces it again. So that when I give testimony to you of how I've seen God and known God, that has the effect of bringing you in to see it for yourself and do it again. She went into the town with that full expectation. Do it again. I have met this man. You come, you come. As she thought in her heart, so she is. She now is so entangled with the love of God that came to her in Jesus that she, she can speak it. it and, and it is so limited. Come see a man. That's, and I love the way he had said to her, I am the Messiah. Literally. You read that. He, he said, I am the Messiah. But did you notice? She said, um, could this be the Messiah? As if she, she's brilliant. Maybe it's because she was a woman. She knows how to convey a message. If she had said, this is the Messiah, oh, well, that's your opinion. Now we're going to argue about it. She said, no, he exposed my life. I met love and safety. This could be the Messiah, you know. You better go and see. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there it is. Um, I've landed the plane. I don't know if you noticed. But... um, The fact is, I've not been talking about this. I have been describing what is so right now in this micro moment in your life where you are. And it is so. It is so. For Jesus that we meet in the Gospels is not merely alive. That's where you can miss the point. He is the living one. He is the one who has been into our death and come out of it with us. And he's the one who holds the keys to our hell. He just looks at us, knows us perfectly, doesn't condemn us, but brings us into the life of the ages, the life of God. So there it is. Amen. 